0: Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Damon Wilson, Executive Vice President here at the Atlantic Council. Delighted to welcome you here for this event. I want to offer a particular thanks to our board members that are with us, as well as members of the diplomatic community. Uh, And I want to welcome those viewers that are following us online here in the United States and around the world. Today, we are proud to announce the release of our second comprehensive digital forensics research report, Distract, Deceive, Destroy, Putin at War, in Syria. <clears throat> last year our team spearheaded um, last year our team spearheaded by Ambassador John Herbst who is with us today, Alina Poyakova, his deputy of the Dino Patricio Eurasia Center, and our tech and media savvy fellows Elliot Higgins and Max Japersky released Hiding in Plain Sight. And that report we were able to show the scale of Russia's intervention in Ukraine using mostly digital breadcrumbs that were left behind by Russian soldiers themselves. Today, our new report underscores how Vladimir Putin has jumped from one foreign policy adventure to the next. After ordering the annexation of Ukraine's Crimea, Putin oversaw the clandestine war in eastern Ukraine backing proxies with weapons and entire army units. As that war ground into a stalemate, Putin turned his eyes to Syria. After a rapid diplomatic campaign and an equally rapid military buildup, he launched airstrikes in the war-torn country. While President Putin recently announced the end of Russia's military operations, the modest forces withdrawn suggest that Russia's military role in Syria is not over. Putin claimed that the purpose of this mission was to fight the Islamic State, to fight ISIS, yet Russia rarely targeted ISIS in Syria. Rather, the Russian intervention served a number of purposes. First, it rescued the longtime Kremlin client, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, and in the process it weakened the American-backed rebels who had been fighting with the Assad regime. It distracted international and Russian domestic attention from the Ukraine crisis. And it allowed the Kremlin to reposition Russia from an adversary in the wake of the Ukraine incidents to becoming a quote-unquote partner on Syria. And in turn, this strengthened Russia's hand at lobbying, so far unsuccessfully, for the lifting of the sanctions imposed after Crimea. So the results in Syria have been grievous. Russia carried out its airstrikes with scant regard for the rules of war. Open source footage, which is documented in our report, shows the repeated use of banned clustered munitions and strikes on targets including mosques, hospitals, and water treatment plants. Russia's military campaign allowed Assad's forces to retake lost ground, a task they did with great brutality and immense human suffering. It barely dented the ISIS terrorist group, whose recent territorial losses have largely come at the hand of Kurdish militias backed by the US-led coalition. So in many respects, far from shortening the war, it exacerbated it. And in doing so, it sent yet more refugees into Turkey and into Europe. As others have coined it, he weaponized migrants, perhaps in an effort to push the European Union and Turkey to their tipping points. So Russia's bombing campaign in Syria was built upon deception. The myth that Russia was fighting terrorism, that the Assad regime was innocent of atrocities, and that the Syrian uprising, to say nothing of the Ukrainian revolution in Ukraine, was instigated by the United States. This report presents the realities of Russia's Syria campaign. Russia launched airstrikes on hospitals, water treatment plants, mosques. Russia used cluster munitions, almost exclusively targeted non-ISIS targets. These are the truths that won't be admitted, the truths that must be understood when we're negotiating with Russia. So the team, and you'll see Max Jepersky and Elliot Higgins in a moment present their findings shortly, they use the power of digital forensics to expose the details of Russia's aerial and ground campaign in Syria. They used information entirely from open sources, available to be viewed and verified by anyone. Such an approach empowers individuals not only to discover information about the war in Syria, but also to verify the information for themselves. Such an, an approach is the opposite of Russia's disinformation campaign, which relies on ideological narratives over verifiable facts. So later during the, our discussion, we'll have a town hall discussion and question and answer uh, featuring former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine John Herbst, Syrian expert Faisal Atani, our senior fellow who is with us, um, who will look at the broader context of Russia's actions in Ukraine's. I'm also delighted that Yulia Yafi is, is with us today, a uh, contributing writer with the New York Times Magazine and a columnist in foreign policy to moderate that conversation. So, as we think about the context today, we need to remember that Putin cultivates an image of unpredictability. He may very well believe that he has a comparative advantage when navigating a crisis rather than dealing with the mundane details of the Russian people. Indeed, while Putin's intervention in Syria clearly has foreign policy objectives, perhaps a main driver of Putin's actions on the international stage may be domestic. In essence, the question is, is the most important target for this deception the Russian people themselves? The Kremlin can no longer count on the social political bargain with the Russian people in which they enjoyed increasing living standards in exchange for accepting an increasingly authoritarian, if not kleptocratic, rule. This point's been driven home by the Panama Papers just released by the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, and I'm pleased to welcome Paul Radu, the head of the project, who is with us today. So, rather than Putin counting on foreign adventures, he's counting on these adventures to help bolster his legitimacy at home as the ruler who can restore Russian greatness in the world, even as the Russians, average Russian's living standard declines at home. So, with this opening, I want to thank everyone for being here with us again. I want to encourage all of you to join the conversation online, uh, submitting comments and questions, as many of you have already done, at the hashtag, Putin at war. And to set the scene for our presenters and the report, um, I'm gonna share this short trailer which the team has produced.
1: The Kremlin has dragged Russia into a pro-Assad intervention in Syria, and has done so not for the sake of Russian national interests, which are simply non-existent there, but for the sake of its own interests. It needed something to draw the public eye away from the inglorious Donbass exit and from the worsening socio-economic situation in the country. And this was achieved by means of scenic images of Russian airstrikes. Who were we bombing in Syria? It wasn't ISIS we were bombing. It was the oppositionists who, generally speaking, are absolutely neither here nor there, as far as Russia is concerned. There is no evidence of our bombarding civilians, even though everyone is accusing us. But that's just not true. And what have we got? Tens, if not hundreds of millions of squandered dollars, military fatalities, a downed plane and a deterioration of relations with Turkey. And what's the upshot of all this? An inglorious exit.
2: Thank you, Damon, for the introduction. Uh, my name is Max Zerperski, and I'm here with Elliot Higgins. And we are delighted to walk you through some of the techniques we used for this uh, digital forensic and open source report. Um, but first of all, I want to uh, give a quick shout out to our principal researcher, Eric Toller, who is sitting back there from Bellingcat, uh, as well as to um, Hormatska, who is broadcasting this live into Russia and Ukraine at this very moment. Um, On September 30th, the Russian Defense uh, Ministry and the Russian government started their air campaign in Syria uh, under the pretext of be hitting uh, ISIS targets. We saw a lot of footage coming out of uh, there, and quickly um, we started seeing Western governments claiming that these targets that were allegedly ISIS targets weren't ISIS targets, but in fact there were uh, non-ISIS targets that were being hit, that in fact the Russian government was not hitting what it was claiming to be hitting. Russian Foreign Ministry, and the Russian Foreign Minister was quick to respond, saying not to listen to the Western allies as well as to the Pentagon, but to rather listen to the Russian Defense Ministry about what they're conducting in Syria. So that's what we did. We looked at all the footage that was being produced by the Russian Defense Ministry and posted online uh, under the tag ISIS targets. Uh, And there was plenty of it out there. And what we saw very quickly was that these very videos that were posted by the Russian Defense Ministry claiming to be hitting ISIS targets in the first few weeks, uh, 30 out of them were not hitting ISIS targets, but only one of them. Out of 30 targets that were claimed to be hitting ISIS targets, only one of them actually uh, was correctly identified as an ISIS target. And most of the other 29 were hitting targets that were not ISIS.
3: So it's, of course, very easy for us to say, well, this is hitting an ISIS target. This is hitting a non-ISIS target. So the sources we were using were the Russian Ministry of Defense's own videos. Not only did we have their own videos, but we also had their own map. And we took their map and we put it into Google Earth. We overlaid it on the country of Syria. And what that gave us were the actual boundaries of where Russia was claiming ISIS was located. So we were able to take this and use this to analyze videos. And here's one of those videos now. So what you're seeing here is a video that claims to be an ISIS facility being struck by the Russian Ministry of Defense from the Russian Ministry of Defense's own YouTube channel. But we also had videos from the ground of this location. Here you can actually see the airstrike as it's occurring, the one we've just seen in the previous video. Dramatic footage, but where is this actually filmed? We are able to find the exact location this video was filmed. And here again, we have the map. We can see the ISIS territory to the east. But in fact, this video was filmed nowhere near ISIS territory. We can actually show here that the video was filmed in Idlib, in territory that by the Russian Ministry of Defense's own map and their own video was not ISIS territory despite their claims.
2: The other thing that started emerging is that uh, time and again people on the ground were reporting cluster bombs being used by the Russian government. The Russian government once again said that there was no cluster bombs used at all, but in fact that they were just using precision weapons. What did we do? Well, we once again listened to the Russian government and the details that they were posting online, including also the press that was going to the Russian bases. And we were able to see that even though the Russian government was claiming not to be using cluster bombs, on their bases, they had cluster bombs, and they were mounting them to their very own planes. If you zoom in here, this is one picture from one of the major air bases. You have a cluster bomb uh, that was being used in a bombing later on. But it is not just the cluster bombs at the base that we took a look at, but we also went on the ground to see what we could find there. And in one instance, if we zoom out here and go to the Illib region, uh, we had the reports of a civilian target being hit. Uh, Throughout the campaign, time and again, people were reporting that the uh, targets, uh, as said earlier, were not ISIS targets, but non-ISIS targets, sometimes even hospital mosques and uh, other civilian targets. And in one instance, uh, the report came out that this very mosque here was destroyed. Um, The Russian Defense Ministry, however, was quick to respond, saying that there's no mosque that was being hit during this airstrike. Um, They even... Uh, went as far to post satellite image to prove that the very mosque that allegedly was being bombed was totally intact, that there was no damage to the mosque. Well, we took a closer look at the image, and we took a closer look at what the activists on the ground were saying, and we were able to uh, use this footage. It was a little bit older, uh, but based on it, we were able to geolocate the actual uh, mosque at the bay. And if we take a zoom here, we can see the location. Um, And what we do is that we were able to geolocate it, overlap it again with Google Earth, and compare that site to the site that the Russian Defense Ministry was claiming. And when we take a look, we realize that the very target they claimed to be hitting was in the same location. So if they're showing us that the mosque wasn't bombed, the activists on the ground are saying the mosque was bombed, but it was a different mosque, uh, why are they showing a wrong location? And where is the mosque that actually was affected in the imagery by the Russian Defense Ministry? Well, uh, we'll take a quick zoom out here. And what you'll see is that, in fact, we can't see where the actually affected mosque was because it was underneath the label of the Defense Ministry. So the imagery posted by the Russian Defense Ministry was showing uh, the wrong location in the first place. And second of all, it was covering up the location that was indeed affected.
3: So what we have here is another incident (coughs) of a Russian bombing uh, that was contested by Russia. Um, This video will introduce you to it and explain the details.
4: فتبين انه مغارة استهدفة المدرسه هي للمشفى الميداني ولله الحمد إنه المدرسة كانت خارجة عن العمل يسوي القصف الصالح في المدرسة وكان الدفاع المدرسي كانت تعطلنا تلشين مغارة سواء لتقائد عبتطلب من الناس انه تروح من مغلق وانا بالواقع وأنا عبتصور مغارة فهون شن الطيران ضرب فاضرب في الموقع اللي انا فيه على بعد نترين او ثلاثه هكتار بيها الصاروخ مني اول ما بيها الصاروخ انا حسيت ان جسمي بيتمزق منطقه من قبل من الارض كل الناس عم تصنع السطر والناس ما بنتبه عليه إنه فيهم واحد مسار كان في شىء صغير بالسطر وحروب إلى اليسار، الشفاية إلى اليمين، وإجراء اليسار، بالاضافه إلى رطول في كل الجسم والصدر، شق كبير بال... بالفك السفلي، بالإضافة إلى شق بالعين. الله أكبر. أنت مضطر أنك توجه المبادئ سواء أنت عملت كمُصي أو أنت عملك كرجل مُقِز أو مُسَعِّف.
2: Pretty tragic footage that we received from the Guardian
3: and uh, with courtesy to them. Uh, Elliot, do you want to walk us through really quickly? So what we have here is an incident where the, there was the first strike. We have the um, gentleman there from um, Syrian civil defense who went to the location with a camera and there was the second strike. Now the Russian MOD denied that this happened. And um, they produced imagery like this, showing um, aerial imagery supposedly taken after the airstrike occurred. And this was um, shared with the, the public. It was shared with the media. And uh, we'll have Russia today explain more details of it.
1: But so it was uh, recently alleged that Russian jets destroyed a hospital in the city of Samin, uh, causing the Russian defense ministry to, uh, well, call on journalists to double check the stories they publish.
3: I call on the respected mass media not to jeopardize their reputation by publishing fakes like this. But it's not just the media. The accusations are actually picked up by the U.S. State Department.
1: And to prove the hospital is totally intact, uh, the Russian Defense Ministry provided up-to-date satellite photographs.
2: The building on this image, dated October 31st, does not look like it was recently bombed. How can we tell if it's the hospital in Sarmin? A year ago, a video was posted on YouTube that shows the hospital under construction. Here's a screenshot from that year-old video. And here is the Russian Defense Ministry's aerial image of what it says is the hospital. We see a similar dome-shaped structure next to the building on both images. We see a wall or a fence positioned in a similar way. So where exactly is the hospital that Russia is accused of hitting?
3: So there we have the Russian Ministry of Defense asking the media to double check the claims coming out of Syria. So let's double check the claims coming out of the Russian Ministry of Defense. So to begin with, we can actually go to the location that's indicated on the Russian um, aerial imagery. Again, remind you that's supposedly from after when the bomb was dropped. Um, We can see here um, details that are visible on the video that's also visible on this imagery from Google Earth. Now, I'll take you through this step by step, just so you can see the details of this. So to begin with, we have the location of the hospital. So uh, no one is debating that fact. But there's other details in this image that's very interesting. So this is the image on the left-hand side from the Syrian civil defense video just before the second bomb was dropped. And we can see certain details. So for example, we can see, um, on the right hand side in the middle, a small structure. Um, and here we can see on the video, the structure is still intact, it's still standing. We can see poles just to the left of that video that are also visible in the imagery, still standing. And also a wall just to the left of that that's also still standing in this video. Now, back to the White Helmets footage. 200. So, again, we have new footage. This is after that second bomb has been dropped. And the camera is in a similar position, looking towards the north. But this time, we can see this structure, which we can see on Google Earth from before the attack is still standing. But it's now completely demolished. The poles, which we can see casting shadows in Google Earth, are badly damaged. Some of them have been knocked down. To the left, we can see the wall that was once standing there has been completely demolished by that second <coughs> airstrike. So let's go back to the Russian Ministry of Defence's imagery. So we can see the hospital here, but to the north, we can see the structure is still standing we can see the poles are still standing, and we can see the wall that was completely destroyed is still standing. So what the Russian Ministry of Defense has done to defend themselves of accusations of this bombing, they have presented imagery that is falsely dated. So
2: we've been distracted from other adventures by President Putin and his government. We've been deceived about the actual campaign on the ground in Syria and what its actual purpose was. And now the question is, what effects do we see? Well, we know that they've destroyed uh, and uh, created massive gains for uh, ISIS by almost acting as an air force for ISIS uh, while prompting up the Assad regime and ensuring that it maintains in power, causing refugee flows that we haven't seen before out of Syria. Uh, And to really talk about the implications of The entire campaign, now that you've seen some of uh, the methods that we apply in our report, uh, we're going to do a quick transition.
0: Setting the stage, let me just offer and reiterate a word of thanks um, to Mikhail Hodokovsky for his message as part of this to The Guardian, uh, which if you saw The Guardian today, uh, ran an exclusive preview of this report in their paper. We're grateful for that as well as their partnership on this video clip. Uh, and I'm going to put this in the able hands of Julia Yaffe, Joff- uh, who's going to be moderating a conversation uh, between Ambassador John Herbst, who is the director of our Eurasia Center, our former ambassador to Ukraine, Uzbekistan, who's been leading a lot of our work on Russia and the region, Uh, to Faisal Atani, who is a senior fellow here at the Atlantic Council and the Rafiq Hariri Center for the Middle East, and is one of our experts on ISIS and what's happening in Syria today. And he'll be joined by Elliot Higgins uh, to discuss the research. So let me put this into your hands, Julie, and invite our panelists to the stage. I also want to give a shout out to Hermatska TV, who's broadcasting this, and Ukrainian and Russian for our expanded viewers. So, thank you. All
5: right. uh, thank you so much for that introduction, and thank you so much for that very interesting report. Elliot, I wanted to start with you and ask you, how is it that somebody uh, sitting at home with a computer maybe on the couch in the kitchen, uh, cares enough about something like this or about the downing of the Malaysian airliner uh, over Ukraine in 2014 to start digging into these details?
3: Well, it was really my own curiosity into understanding more than that was being reported in the media, especially when, uh, you know, in the case of um, what we've just shown, you have clearly two very different versions of events. Um, But thanks to the kind of information that anyone can access nowadays, uh, you can actually get a you know, some idea of what's actually happening on the ground and actually fact-check some of this information. Um, So, uh, you know, this is what we've done with this latest report. And really, this is what anyone can do at home with the information publicly available.
5: Why would they want to?
3: Um, Well, I hope uh, there's plenty of people out there who actually want to know what's going on in the world and actually uh, want a way to verify the information that's, um, you know, being being presented by different sides in a conflict or any situation.
5: So who is your, when you put a report like this together, and this is for a question for Max as well. Who is your intended audience? I'm assuming, you know, governments and intelligence agencies already know all of this stuff. So who's your, who are you addressing this report to?
3: Well, um, I think maybe Max might want to answer that question. Um, So um, one of the key uh,
2: intentions with this as well as with hiding in plain sight was to um, also empower the public to start informing itself better about what's happening in the world. And seeing conflicts from a lens that we haven't seen before, so it's mostly educating the public and empowering the public to be part in discussion that we haven't seen before
5: um, I'm just going to push this a little bit further and play devil's advocate. Um, I think probably to a lot of people in this room and a lot of people who are who follow uh, Russia and who follow the Middle East it's not a surprise that you know Russia would be lying about certain things or maybe muddying the waters so Whose mind are you trying to change?
3: Well, I think um, you know people think, well, you know this side lies, you know Russia lies, America lies, you know people have that kind of things. But, being able to actually categorically prove it and then show the sheer scale of it. We were looking at all the airstrike videos that the Russian Ministry of Defense posted online. Uh, You know, in the first three weeks, over 60% had incorrect information about them. And we compare that to videos posted as part of Operation Inherent Resolve, you know, by the Iraqi Air Force, the U.S. Air Force, and there was not that same pattern of behavior. We also have instances, as I showed um, in the presentation, where not only were they lying about the targets hit, but they presented, you know, evidence that was purely fake, you know, satellite imagery from before the events actually occurred, claiming they happened afterwards. And this is something we've seen with um, Syria, this is something we've seen with Ukraine, and this is what we also saw with MH17. So this is a clear and consistent pattern of behavior from the Russian government and Russian Ministry of Defense.
5: With the MH17, um, you know, you reminded me, when the Dutch presented their findings in the final report about what brought down the airliner, the uh, the Russians, uh, broadcast their own competing news conference with their own report and their own sci- you know, scientific findings. Um, my question is, and John, feel free to weigh in, why do the Russians, why does the Russian Ministry of Defense go to such lengths to uh, find outdated satellite imagery, to doctor other images why did they, and have all these press conferences and put up all these videos and maps? What, why it, do they do that? It's very simple.
6: For people who are naturally inclined to support the Russian point of view, this gives them a sense that they have the facts at their command, even if these are completely bogus. And this type of abuse of media, um, we've seen before. I mean, Goebbels was a master of it, but so was the Soviet Union. But I think that Mr. Putin's Russia, in picking up this particular type of um, instrument, has perfected it in ways that the, his predecessors never had.
3: I think one thing that's powerful about the techniques we're using is it kind of cuts through um, all of that. And we can say, you know, there's these different stories being presented, you know, you look at the Russian media, especially with MH17, and often they're quite contradictory, but we can use open source evidence to clearly show what the facts are. and I think that's very Im- important in this kind of age that we're living in now.
7: Uh, uh, Julie, may yes. I add one more
3: sure. point? Uh, I think in addition
7: to converting the persons who are liable to be converted, and reflecting what those of us who are s- skeptical anyway think, there is a sort of middle here uh, in, the, in the public discourse, as well as even in, at the level of uh, the governments in the West, whereby you have a sort of hesitation or crisis of confidence in some of the Western countries about how and whether it is just to push back against the Russians. And this sort of muddying the waters, confusing things, keeping the debate, the argument over things that aren't really debatable, but keeping that argument going confuses and demoralizes everyone who has to, who has to push a certain narrative and recruit others <coughs> on their side. So I think that's, that's one reason why it's important.
5: So when you inform the middle, um, what, what is that middle supposed to do armed with these facts? It's so a question for Elliot, for Max, for John, for Faisal. Um,
3: well, For me, a big part of what we do is engaging an audience that isn't just about pushing information one way, but it's getting them engaged with the actual evidence. Rather than saying, this is our story, there you go, that's it. We want people to say, "Okay, I want to look at the information you're presenting." Um, so really, it's about moving away from uh, what we like, you, you know, we call the information age until the engagement age, where we're actually talking to people, listening to them, examining, you know, now this vast array of information coming from all kinds of different situations, and um, you know, turning it into something that's actually you know useful and truthful, um, and really, you know, that allows us to counter all kinds of um, untrue narratives wherever they're coming from.
5: And Max, from your perspective, is that supposed to then lead to political action?
2: Uh... Uh, Absolutely. If the uh, public is better informed, uh, they can apply pressure more on uh, their policymakers and make decisions together more effectively on how to respond to crises.
5: And do you think the the Russian uh, population is at all a target for this? Because what's amazing, uh, what you've seen in the Putin era, is that despite... Um, traditional media crumbling everywhere and being uh, wa- its boundaries washed away by social media by uh, things like you 're doing in russia there's still people still live in this cocoon of TV information and and to some extent in a parallel informational plane uh, after the Malaysian airliner was shot down, three percent of Russians believe that the separatist rebels had done it. <coughs> Only 3% believe it to this day. Like, they, they seem to be kind of impenetrable. Do you think, is there a way to break through that? Are you trying to?
6: There, there's no question that, that the Kremlin's massive disinformation campaign has been largely successful at home, complete, almost completely successful at home, and had some successes beyond Russian borders. Uh, it, partly this is a re- result of their own effectiveness. Russian TV today is much more effective than the old Soviet TV channels, partly as a result of the fact that the West has stopped its information efforts in the post-Soviet space because it thought the Cold War had ended. Uh, what we have today is a partial understanding in Western capitals that we need to address this in a, in a more forthright way, to put more resources into it. And we've seen efforts by people um, on their own, like Eliot, to address this because they are outraged at this clear abuse of truth. And over time, it will have an impact. But right now, the impact in the Russian, the Russian public has been rel- relatively small.
5: So John, this is a question for you. One of the D's and Max's and Elliot's report was distract. What is it that the Russians are trying to distract us and their own population from?
6: Well, two points here. First, I think that Putin went into Syria in order to rescue his longtime ally. The Assad family has been an ally of of Moscow since the late 60s. And he he, Assad, was clearly on the ropes. But at the same time, the Kremlin has a problem in eastern Ukraine. Their military offensive has bogged down. The Ukrainians have fought them to a standstill, given the type of war that Russia is compelled to fight without drawing further sanctions from Europe. So moving into Syria enabled Putin to change both the conversation in Russia from Ukraine and internationally from Ukraine. And that's helpful to Russians' objectives.
5: And uh, one of the, this is a question for you, one of, the question, uh, one of the things that struck me in this report was the targeting of water treatment facilities, hospitals, mosques. Were these mistakes that the Russian uh, Defense Ministry was trying to cover up or were these intentional targets?
7: No, I don't think they were mistakes. I think uh, you know, this is a strategy that's been used to pretty good effect uh, by the Syrian regime even before the Russian intervention uh, the targeting uh, of these sorts this of targets, because they affect the general civilian population in uh, areas controlled by the opposition, they end up creating this very perverse dynamic between <coughs> the opposition and, uh, and the local population, and they also end up undermining local governance. And those are two very important things, and they've been very important to some of the key gains the regime has been able to make in uh, areas like Aleppo and areas around the, the capital of Damascus and in the south as well. The insurgency understands that, so whenever they find them, when they found themselves in the same position vis-à-vis the Russians, but multiply it by orders of precision and magnitude, they were they literally had to understand that they could not keep up the fight anymore. So it was quite effective, and I uh, and I, I don't imagine that it would be less accurate than regime operations. So I'm pretty sure it's deliberate.
6: If you look, if you look carefully at the Russian operation in Syria, you say they made almost no territorial gains in 19 excuse me in 2015. They stopped the retreat of Assad, but there were almost no territorial gains. In January, they began to use the same tactics that they used successfully in the Second Chechen War, massive bombing of civilian centers. And so ISIL's absolutely right that what they did, they bombed these places, because this was part of driving both the opposition group and their civilian enablers from the territory. At the same time, this produced a massive increase in both internally displaced people and in refugees, which in turn put pressure on governments in Europe, especially Chancellor Merkel, who's been the principal figure in Europe, uh, standing up to the Kremlin's aggression in Ukraine. So it was a multi-purpose hit for Russian foreign policy.
5: So the what's been called the weaponization of refugees, you think that was an intentional, that was a a sp- goal going into it, or was it was a beneficial byproduct?
6: I don't know if this is what they had in mind, but they clearly recognized early on the additional benefit to their national security policy. And of course, it was precisely this tactic which they were pursuing in Syria for their Syrian
7: objectives. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I think it also, uh, I mean, I'm not sure whether they deliberately planned this as a tactic, but uh, the general refugee problem and the jihadi problem, which are seen as interrelated by Western Europe in particular, that that thing is attributed to the war continuing. and so if the russians come in and they pose the possibility that they might be able to solve this war for you, uh, however however much you dislike you dislike them and in one fell swoop they could solve the refugee issue and probably handle the transnational jihadi issue, great, it sounds a lot more tempting as a proposition. i think that's really what it is.
5: I have one last question then we'll open it up to the audience. Um, it's a question for Elliot and Max and for you guys as well. But um, November 17th seems to be a kind of pivotal point in your report. This is the date that the uh, Russian jetliner uh, was blown out of the sky, uh, just out of Sharm el-Sheikh. Why was that such a turning point?
3: Um, well. From the moment on the ground, I mean, what we could see um, for the first time, there's more focus of ISIS um, territory. Uh, we could see many oil refineries in these videos, but even then, some of these supposed oil refineries turned out to be water treatment plants and grain silos. Um, What we also saw was after the initial kind of wave of videos where they were repeatedly caught out lying about the locations, they became a lot more general in the kind of language they were using. They went from talking about purely ISIS targets in specific locations to more general terms like terrorists and militants in entire regions. So the language they were using changed and also um, there was definitely a shift in the targets they were uh, aiming for, but it seemed to be mainly um, refineries of various types.
6: I think there's there's one more point
3: uh, it's worth
6: mentioning. I, I said before that the Kremlin offense, excuse me, the Kremlin operation at the end of December of last year was successful in in preventing Assad from losing more ground. But on balance, it was not particularly a winner for for the Kremlin because a it, it only had stopped the erosion in Syria, but b besides the shoot down of the Russian airliner, which made the, the whole question of the operation problematic for the Russian people. You also had the Turkish shoot down of the Russian airliner. And Moscow had not responded to that. So it seemed they had taken two significant hits without any comparable gain. And it's hard to say what drove them to change their tactics in this year, in the new year. But the decision to change their tactics certainly was at least partly response to the not particularly successful operation as of the end of last year.
5: All right. we're gonna take questions from the audience now, and I'm gonna say uh, the same thing you probably hear at every panel, which is let's try to keep, make them questions, and not statements. Um, who wants to go first? Go
8: first. Sir? Hi, do uh, you want me to stand up? Or I'll just stay just seated. Fine. Thanks. <laughs> uh, I'm Richard Burt, and uh, long ago in my past, I uh, also worked for the New York Times. And my question has to do with the Western media, actually. I don't know if it's just uh, 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 meant to be kind of uh, 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 clever in saying that you did all of this in your kitchen, you know, uh, maybe in your pajamas, but uh, it is quite remarkable what you were able to uh, retrieve here uh, and analyze with open sources. So uh, congratulations. but. But I think more importantly, doesn't this say something about, I don't know, the cavalier or lazy attitude of, uh, of the Western media in failing to kind of uh, check this out more carefully? I mean, I'm particularly struck by this photograph with the cluster munitions, you know, right next to the uh, Russian fighter bomber. Uh, one would have thought, I, I assume that was a Russian uh, picture released by the Russian MOD, one would have thought that somebody would have found that before you did. Uh, so, I mean, what what sort of conclusions? Uh, and I'd ask the whole panel this question, but maybe uh, the moderator. Uh, what I mean, what's wrong with the Western media in not looking at as carefully as uh, as as you have in uncovering this Russian deception?
3: So would the moderator like to start from the uh, from the media? Okay, I'll, I'll begin. Um, I, I think, um, and this is something I've seen in all kinds of organizations we meet, uh, you know, not just the media, that um, there's really um, been such a rapid change in technology, people haven't even thought to start looking at things in this way. And um, for people like me, Um, who started doing this a few years ago, we had no resources apart from what was available online, open source information. Um, Now what we've seen, especially with the Atlantic Council reports, is more and more um, organizations realizing that this is something very useful. But, you know, if you're an intelligence agency, why would you look so closely at, you know, photographs like that if you've got, you know, massive computer systems and huge numbers of analysts? It's because... Um, You know, they've got different ways of doing things and whilst they've been busy doing that, this kind of entire field has rapidly evolved to the point where um, we're able to work with the Atlantic Council and produce reports like this um, and really have a massive change in how this kind of information is being perceived.
5: I would say that um, I think the Western media is notoriously slow in uh, catching up to new technologies I don't know if you remember about 10 years ago there was a collective um, panic attack in basically all of American media that the Internet was going to de- cannibalize it and slowly but surely I mean, and I think we're still figuring out how to use how to use the Internet in our work and not and still you know um, get paid um, But I think, but slowly, slowly but surely, I think journalists are catching up and you have people like uh, Max Seddon who, when he was at BuzzFeed, used these similar tools that uh, Eliot described to pinpoint uh, that there were Russian troops actually across the Ukrainian border on Ukrainian territory. Uh, Simon Ostrovsky of Vice actually just won an award for his um, uh, reporting on a, a Russian soldier, He basically tracked his uh, location through his selfies. Um, So my colleagues are starting to use it, but I think it's a question of time and catching up.
9: Hi, Valerie Sabala
5: from the Syria Institute. Um, This question is mainly for Elliot. So as you said, you've been doing this for several years now. Um, Have you seen any evolution? And and Russia is aware that you're doing it, and they've tried to discredit you. Um, Have you seen them grow more sophisticated, Uh, them and and the Syrian government, too, Um, since they know that people like you are looking very closely? Has it gotten harder to see over time? Have the methods changed?
3: I don't think so. It seems that they're focusing their energy in their kind of traditional form of propaganda. So you're getting certainly more advanced versions of that. You know, the troll factories are um, very active and we've seen them producing fake videos for the Dutch referendum uh, recently. Um, But I really don't think they are at all. And a big part of this isn't so much about what the Russian government is doing or what the Syrian government is doing, but um, what the people there are doing, what the people in Syria are doing. They're sharing, they're sharing information online. Really what we should be looking at is the smartphones and you know how many people have smartphones, because inevitably if someone's got a smartphone, they're gonna get an app and they're gonna start sharing information. And that is what we're looking out for, people posting photographs and images um, <coughs> online. It's a bit different for Syria, because there is a kind of slightly different structure to how things are organized there. But um, in the wider context of this work, in a way, it's, there's only gonna be more information out there for us to find. And because we're dealing with kind of information that's uh, you know, networks of information, um, it's very difficult to insert fake information into that in a way that someone who's you know, aware of how this works would be caught out from. And um, I think that's where this is quite effective against the kind of propaganda that's being put out, because you can fact check this stuff, you can verify it, and you can use that, do that by using uh, kind of decentralized information flows.
5: In the back?
9: You guys were talking about how um, this is intended to, um, in a way, affect the public opinion. Um, my question is, do you think it is, do you think that this would lead somewhere, like with the public opinion, especially with leaders? Um, I mean, after the Ghouta massacre in 2013, the public opinion was like furious. But again, there were red lines that were not respected, no one, no one did anything. They came out with a sort of messed up deal to keep the regime in place. So do you think the public opinion is effective even if, it is, even if it takes this into consideration? And my second question is, the de facto alliance between Assad and ISIS seemed to be obvious to everyone before the Russian invasion, uh, especially in Western countries. After, after the Russian invasion, a lot of the rhetoric has changed. Do you think in that aspect, Russia was successful? and its intervention in Syria. Thanks.
5: Who wants to tackle that, can, or those uh, questions? Uh, I to so
7: question tackle too. part of it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Look, uh, I think uh, there is a limit to what uh, sort of open public communication can achieve when it comes to convincing populations that have deeply, deeply entrenched sort of emotional <laughs> emotional uh, feelings about, poli- about policies. I don't think, actually, there was a lot of outrage in the United States in 2013 during the Ghouta attack. I was here, and I was working on this same issue. Uh, there was kind of a bit of disgust, but, no, but nothing sort of compelling government action to do any one particular thing. I think something to be sold at that level needs probably to be done from political leadership, not from dissemination of facts, because I don't think there was much doubt here over what happened uh, in Ghouta. Uh, as for whether they've managed to, whether the Russians have managed to convince others around their cause. A bit, but, uh, but what I think is they've uh, what I do think they 've achieved is this: those of us making, whether here or in other Western countries or anywhere else, trying to make the case for a more robust more robust policy against uh, the Assad regime, now the burden of the argument has sort of shifted onto us, and that 's different than what it has been for the past four years, despite the fact that nothing happened policy wise but. The, the moral case was always quite easy. Uh, now I think even that has become a bit complicated because there's somebody in the arena with whom, unlike the Iranians, you can sort of, or you pers- people perceive that you can sort of do business with. I don't share that perception, but I recognize that that's what's happening. That's my, only my opinion.
6: <laughs> John? At the moment, I think you'd have to classify the Russian campaign as a success for Moscow. They stopped the erosion of Assad's position. They got out with that as the perception. They've enabled, in fact, Assad to take back some territory. And they have now become the center of a, of a negotiation. Uh, so, and oh, finally, they've increased the refugee crisis in Europe, which weakens the governments who are opposing them on Ukraine. Uh, but I say for now it's a success because I don't think they've solved the basic problem of assuring the regime Assad regime's future. Uh, They've done, they've taken no steps against ISIS and the other radical uh, Islamists who are the principal danger to the Assad regime. And over time, they will probably once again regain the upper hand over Assad, and then Mr. Putin has a dilemma. But for the moment, he looks like a winner.
5: Hello, wait for the mic.
9: Hi, I'm Yelena Troskler. I'm with the Russian Law School. Uh, the question that I'm going to ask may sound a little bit amateurish, but I'm sure that this is the question that many ordinary people would want to ask. Uh, where do you get the information about the Russian strikes? I mean, um, do you cover only cases that have become, um, that have gotten public attention, or do you get information of your own? I mean, how do you know that these are Russian planes, not American, not Syrians, not somebody else's? Thank you.
3: So um, in the cases that we've used in the study, um, for example, the Russian um, airstrike videos, we looked at every single video posted by the Russian Ministry of Defense themselves. Um, so, in cases where we actually had footage from the ground of the same airstrike as we showed with the bakery bombing, uh, we have not only the Russian M.O.D. saying it's the Russian M.O.D. who's bombed it, but the people on the ground as well. Um, we've also looked at, as we show there, cases where Russia has denied they've even bombed anything or uh, you know, produced imagery that has been falsely dated or showed another location. Um, And we've um, been able to use a variety of ways of seeing, um, you know, verifying this information. One of the examples we showed you in the um, presentation towards the end was what we call geolocation where we compare the imagery that's provided to um, details of satellite imagery, um, other details such as um, photographs from the ground. And by that way we can actually confirm where these incidents have happened. We also have the Russians who have been putting out details of where they've been bombing uh, and also we know what kind of aircraft we're operating in the areas based off footage. Um, from the ground. So we're really using a variety of sources. But what was, I think, most interesting for us in this particular report is how much of that information actually came from the Russian Ministry of Defense.
5: Sir?
10: My name is Alexa Sapchenko, and I have a question to the moderator and Ambassador Herbst. Um, You mentioned about the Malaysian uh, MH17 plane which was shut down over Ukraine, and I don't know how many people are aware that a group, I don't know whether it's one person or a group of people in Russia made a very similar research by checking literally lots of networks and finding the um, route of the launcher which shut down the Malaysian plane establishing it with a very, very high probability that it was a Russian launcher based in Kursk. Uh, you, you mentioned that the Dutch uh, basically re- recognized the results of this re- report and many others, but so far we do not have any verdicts. No criminal case was open. No official conclusion was made. The plane was shut down in 2014. We have more information than about Syria, about who did it. And why do you think uh, the West is so reluctant to call the space spade? In other words, uh, Russians love to say that the Westerns, Westerners, the Western Europe is decadent, too soft, unable to face the reality, and uh, it's easy to call them. Is that true? Thank
3: you. Can I just start by saying I believe that report is one uh, we actually published as well uh, on the third Air Defence Brigade coming from Kursk, which we tracked just to begin with.
5: Uh, I th- and also um, one of the Dutch investigators, I believe, said right after that press conference when they presented the report, kind of made an offhand comment to, a, I believe, a BBC reporter and said, uh, you know, we know it was the Russians, we know, uh, we know it was a Russian brigade, But, you know, it it wasn't part of the report, but one of the investigators did say it and it did come out in the press. I think the reason we don't see any verdicts or, I think because it um, obliges Europe to a course of action, um, a harsher course of action than it it took um, after the annexation of Ukraine and the invasion of, uh, I'm sorry, the annexation of Crimea, Freudian slip, and uh, the invasion of Eastern Ukraine um, it was hard enough to get Europe on board with the sanctions that it did impose on Russia, and to go even further, I think, would take um, a lot more lobbying effort. It's not clear where that would come from, to whose benefit it would redound. You would think the Dutch would be doing it, but they seem to be okay with it as is. Um, it also might, not, it might be a Lockerbie situation where it <coughs> takes a long time for a verdict or justice to be handed down.
6: I would simply say that there are deep socio-psychological reasons for the reluctance of Western society to recognize the great danger that Mr. Putin's foreign policy presents to them. Uh, and I, I am one of those people who don't like to compare Putin to Hitler, because he's, he's a much smaller danger. But nonetheless, he's a very serious danger. And if you, read, if you read Churchill's The Gathering Storm, you realize how long it took Europe to understand the danger they were facing and it's a smaller danger, but nonetheless a serious one today, and a comfort with the Europe that existed, the international situation that existed um, in the late 90s, and a reluctance to move from that, even though there are clear reasons staring Europe and the United States in the face. It's impossible to realistically call the crisis in Ukraine a regional crisis, when one of the world's two great nuclear superpowers is marching and changing borders by force. But space statesmen, or so-called statesmen, say that.
9: Uh, Sasha Seoff, uh, My question is is since the cessation of hostilities in Syria, uh, there's been a lot more civic action. You have greater freedom of movement on the ground and as, the, and as a result, uh, a lot more videos is being taken. Uh, so this is kind of for Elliot and Faisal. I mean, do you both feel that the cessation of hostilities, if nothing else, is giving you more access to data and video, which you can then use to verify some of these claims? Thanks
1: can you stop?
7: Oh, yes and no. Uh, yes, because obviously it's, e- it's easier for them to operate. Uh, there is also a little less, little less contentious things happening than before. But one thing that has been interesting is in terms of the violations that have been occurring in Homs and Hama and around Damascus, those are crystal clear being documented. Uh, doesn't seem to make any difference, but they're happening, with, it's, very, it's very uncontested, uh, so in that sense, there is a very small bright spot for the record, not that it matters what I think, but I don't think the sensation hostilities is going to hold much more much longer than it already has. Uh, but uh, well, there you have it.
3: Uh, yeah, i broadly agree with that. Um, I think uh, especially the final point, I don't think this will hold for too much longer, um, but there is kind of more material coming online, but again, it's as you were saying, it's not the sort of material that I mean, that I would find um, particularly useful in understanding the conflict. Um, you know, it, although it is interesting at a civil society level.
11: Jonathan um, I'm wondering in, in doing Can you your answer work, the
5: question about Western
11: media also? Well I can <laughs> I can answer that. I can I've actually been proposing that we I follow Elliot very closely. Um, and been pushing the idea, um, and I'm not sure where it's going to go at this point, but um, it it seems obvious to me, and I, and I wanted to know if you've come across this in your work, that what you're doing is something that um, intelligence agencies, including U.S. intelligence agencies, would do, uh, plus supplemented by all of the more powerful technologies that they have uh, from interception of signals intelligence to photographic intelligence, um, to put a case together that's probably a lot harder than yours. And yet, there was a reluctance uh, from the American intelligence, at least the American intelligence community, to actually, uh, sorry, from the American government, to actually make a case based on what it's hearing from its own intelligence Community, And I'm wondering if you've picked up on that in your uh, work and why it is that we're not seeing the same kind of um, work that you're doing coming out of the American intelligence community. I can tell you that when we have had briefings uh, that we're presented with commercial uh, overhead, uh, commercial satellite imagery, and nothing uh, that you know, the United States government itself has uh, has to be able to do this kind of
3: work? Um, well, I mean, it's kind of frustrating to, for me when I see um, some, something of like the US government putting out um, satellite imagery of artillery in Russia, supposedly firing into Ukraine. And that's all they put out when uh, we can see there is additional information that does exist. Uh, which really um, makes me question how much they're actually using this kind of information and I don't think it's as much as you might uh, assume I think it comes down to the question of whether or not um, they've had to do this before and they've sort of caught on about how much useful information is actually out there um, so I, I personally feel that um, they might be picking upon it on it quite a lot now but you know with any you know bureaucratic. Establishment, it's going to take a long time for the wheels to turn and for this to be actually something that they do on a regular basis. Um, Despite what some people say on the internet, I don't have any particular insight into how intelligence agencies (laughs) operate. Um, But it does really (laughs) well, but it it does seem time and time again this information is powered by any government and it just lacks um, this kind of additional kind of open source layer that I feel makes the case so compelling and can be checked by the public and verified themselves.
6: I'd make one point in response to your question. <laughs> just as we saw an abuse of intelligence under the Bush administration to make a case for a specific action, I think you're seeing not as large an abuse, but, but um, not proper use of intelligence right now. Because if they were to put this stuff out, this would push their policy in a direction which I don't think they want to go.
0: I think Damon had a question. I'll ask a question, but also just... I think one of the factors is we've had conversations with folks in government, as you can imagine, we've, we've done. Part of what everybody's dealing with catch-up uh, is, is the speed of information. And even when we were serving together in very difficult crises, um, we always found staying in sync even with CNN was a challenge. So now the way this is being processed and run is, is anathema to some of the culture of verifying the information, attribution, confirming, going through various levels before you brief it to the most senior policymakers in government, that's a culture that really impacts the way we handle things because these are big, the implications are significant. So uh, these teams operate in real time, live in real time, and can be part of that conversation, which is happening whether or not governments decide to participate in it, it now is an unhindered conversation. So that's just partly response in some of our conversations we had. I want to turn back to the panel and ask particularly Faisal and John to look forward in policy terms. And you've already signaled a little bit of this with your comment on the durability of the ceasefire. But we've just had Secretary Kerry come back from uh, Moscow. There is a sense of uh, momentum on how to move forward on the Syria Accords. This is a pretty high objective in the administration. It's the last year of the administration, and this is up there. So where do you see the process going on this, the, this, the, the Syria negotiations and a Syria accord in particular? A, a more durable agreement beyond the ceasefire, obviously. But the second set of agreements that are at stake and where there's lots of back uh, discussion right now is the Minsk agreement. Um, and John, how does all of this impact where we are with implementation on the Minsk agreement? Um, and then to bring these together, What's I mean? Part of what we're playing out, seeing play out, is perhaps a Russian strategy to normalize its relations with the West, in the wake of Ukraine, in the wake of other things. Where are we headed? Because we've seen this game a couple of times before. So, are we headed for a pathway of of normalization between the West and Russia, in part because of what's coming out of Syria?
7: Start with Syria. Yes, start with Syria. Udlaska. please. Tefal. I think uh, you know. I would, in the abstract, I'd see the uh, possibility for some sort of improvement of relationship over over Syria, or at least some cooling down. But you know, honestly, I don't think we're headed in this direction. I think there's a lot of activity at the high levels. Uh, But uh, what ends up happening is this ceasefire is agreed to, basic framework of politics is agreed to in negotiation, then real life kicks in and uh, the regime ends up very, very clearly saying, look, uh, and I'm, I'm actually quoting one of their senior most officials, the opposition is not going to gain in negotiations what it could not take on the battlefield, which is not an illogical position to take. And uh, the opposition for its part can't afford to concede, partially because they'll be destroyed. Second of all, they have foreign patrons that they have to think about as well. Uh, so we end up stuck, and there's not really a stalemate. It's not a stalemate, but uh, it's a frozen situation. And uh, I think what will end up happening is the process is going to get away from the United States and, the, and to a lesser extent the Russians, and everybody's going to be pulled back into taking their position. The Russians are going to have to back the regime again to an extent, and the United States is not going to be able to do much. The regional backers are going to wait until there's a new administration in Washington and see if they can last that long, and then we'll see. I have no idea what will happen then, Depending, even, even if I knew who gets elected, I wouldn't know what's going to happen. Uh, so I think that's where we are in terms of prospects of peace for now.
6: Uh, I agree largely with that analysis. As for the Minsk Agreement, uh, it, it's very clear uh, that, one, the violence in, in the East ra- ra- ratcheted down up until a couple of, uh, couple of months ago, and now it's picked back up it's also clear that people around Mr. Putin are looking at ways to perhaps change their, their policy in Ukraine. It doesn't mean they're going to decide to change it, but they're looking at ways. That's one of the reasons why uh, you had the famous negotiation between Tory and Nuland and um, Vladislav Surkov outside of the Minsk format. And there have been various indications coming out of Moscow, relatively soft, but they're looking at different, different possibilities. Uh, They're probably doing that for two reasons. One, their military campaign in Ukraine has gotten stuck. At the level they're willing to fight, the Ukrainians have fought them to a standstill. That's on the one side. On the other side, there is serious economic pain in Russia as a result of both the drop in oil prices and sanctions. Russian GDP fell almost 4% last year. Wages fell almost 10%. And senior Russian officials are saying privately that they expect the same result this year. Uh, That could be a reason for them to adjust their policy in Ukraine and for them to seek normalization with the West. But it's also true they haven't made that decision. Uh, It's unclear if the economic pain translates into political instability. Thus far it has not, although there are certain indications to the the other side. Uh, My sense is that the Kremlin will try to get sanctions eased if not lifted this summer, and if that doesn't work, they'll try it again next winter. If they fail on both occasions, and I believe they will not get sanctions eased this summer, then we may see a real change in policy, meaning a real sense to reduce their involvement in Ukraine in order to improve, get rid of sanctions and improve relations with the West. But this is by no means a sure thing.
5: I think we have time for one more question. sir. Sure.
12: Thank you. Uh, Evan Fury. I- I'm struck listening to this presentation that this is uh, old technique using new technology. This is about disinformation. It's about information operations, psychological operations, which have clearly been a part of military operations for as, for, uh, as long as time. And it's a two-way street, so we shouldn't be too sort of, morally indignant that that this is not uh, something that the West also takes part in what i 'm interested in is the as the hybrid warfare sort of doctrine develops and um, Russia has, is in the sort of early days of their own development and the West is responding. The sort of moral and legitimacy challenges that this raises, um, because we will be faced and we have been faced as a sort of Western audience with similar sort of deception challenges um, when it comes to the use of force. And I just, I just wonder if the panel could reflect on those sorts of challenges that we're seeing now that the public and the media is more empowered with better evidence. Ambassador,
6: okay. <laughs> uh, You're right that these type of operations are as old as war, and Sun Tzu said that, you know, the real mark of a master is being able to get your enemy to surrender without having to fight via such operations. Uh, the, the problem today is not that the Russians are so skillful at this, although they're doing a pretty good job. The problem today is that there's a reluctance in, in the West to understand the nature of the problem. If, if this was well understood in elite circles, in government and in the media, there would not be an issue. Then the, the sense of ambiguity would be swept aside by the overwhelming preponderance of the evidence. Whether we're talking about the shoot down of MH17, we're talking about the little green men in Crimea, we're talking about who the Kremlin is targeting in Syria. All these things would easily be managed. But when you have a reluctance on the part of, of influential people to recognize the problem, then that gives these information operations a certain amount, a great amount of effectiveness. But again, we're we're gradually coming out of this stupor, just not fast enough for my taste.
5: All right, thank you so much to everyone for coming. Thank you to the panelists, thank you to Elliot and Max for this report, and to Damon for emceeing this event, um, and to the Atlantic Council for hosting it.